Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I want to talk about Percy Bysshe Shelley, the famous romantic poet. I first heard the poetry of Shelley read aloud by Mick Jagger on a stage in Hyde Park in London in 1969. I was watching it on the telly, I should say. I wasn't there. And Mick Jagger said, peace, peace. I'm not doing the impression. Peace, peace. He is not dead. He doth not sleep. He hath awakened from the dream of life. Now, those were lines from a poem by Shelley called Adonais, which he wrote for John Keats, a poet we've discussed in a previous podcast, and who had recently died aged 25. Mick Jagger was applying those lines to the former Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones, who just died aged 27. And of course, we like our delicate, beautiful creatives to die young. And Shelley himself, I don't want to cut to the end so soon, but I'm going to tell you, he drowned aged 29 in Italy. And um, I'm going to be honest, this is ghoulish, but a great story. He was cremated on the beach in the presence of Lord Byron, no less, But his heart was rescued before the flames took hold and it was given to his wife Mary Shelley, herself no stranger to gothic horror. Yes, she wrote uh, Frankenstein. And Mary Shelley kept her husband's heart wrapped in a copy of that uh, poem, Adonais, and it's actually buried with her in Bournemouth. So I know I don't do much biography stuff on here, but I do like to give you the juices. And that is, it's a good one, isn't it? Although it obviously shot through with tragedy. So, yeah, so um, as far as um, Shelley was concerned, he, like all free love bohemians, left behind him a trail of broken hearted lovers and neglected children. But happily, he also left behind a lot of brilliant poetry. And the poem I want to talk about is called England in 1819. I say it's called that. Shelley didn't call it that. It was called that 20 years later by Mary, his wife, when she finally published it. There was never really any chance that this poem would be published in its day. And I like that. I like that Shelley felt a need to write this poem, knowing it wouldn't be published because of its political content. But just writing it anyway, that a few of his friends might read it. And just the idea that it he had to out it. He had to put it down on paper. He was born to a quite well-off family, Shelley, but such was his long line of bad behaviour, they eventually sort of disowned him. So he lived mainly in poverty. But I like the idea he wasn't writing just for fame and money, but sometimes he just had to Right. One more bit of biography which I love is shortly after Shelley was expelled from Oxford for distributing a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism, he wrote another one which was about um, a guy, a publisher had published some works by Tom Paine, the revolutionary writer, and he got into trouble for doing that. And um, Shelley wrote a defence of that publisher. But he knew, again, that, that he would never get that properly published. So he rowed a boat into the Bristol Channel and he put the pamphlet into, um, or copies of the pamphlet, into little bottles, on, into handmade little boats. He even flew copies of the pamphlet by fire lanterns to uh, to distribute it. So he was used to not being published. 
But by now he was a, a, a much better uh, poet in, uh, in 1819. But as I say, he knew that this poem was never going to get a legitimate publisher. I'm going to read you the first six lines of that poem. It's a sonnet. Now, we've done several sonnets on here, and you must be sick of me talking about them. Just as another quick um, summary, there are basically, basically two times types of uh, sonnet. So that's the sonnet alarm going off, which I know goes off in many of your heads, if you can hear it in the background. But there's the Italian sonnet, which basically splits into a sort of eight, six, eight lines and six lines. And the eight lines, first eight lines say one thing and the six lines slightly vary, thus making up the total 14, which every sonnet has to have. And it's in iambic pentameter, the um, the ten syllable lines. I'm trying to be brief and not bore you. And then there's the ones which you'd call the English sonnet, which are three quatrains, three blocks of four lines, which make up the twelve, and then a sort of killer couplet of two rhyming lines at the end, the punchline, if you like, of the of the English sonnet. Now. Shelley chooses the sonnet form here, I think, as a bit of a joke because the, the sonnet is a courtly poem often associated with romantic love and this is an attack on the court and shot through with hate and rage. That, I think, is his, his main undermining of the sonnet form. I could go into details and say this one sort of splits... 662, but it kind of ends with a double couplet, etc. But the main thing is he takes this lovely, courtly love structure and then he rages through it. I'm going to give you the first six lines. As I say, it kind of goes sestet, sestet, couplet, but not quite, because he's Shelley and he will not follow rules. That's his life, basically. OK, by the way, sestet is the word for six lines. I for some time thought it was sex train, taking it from quatrain, but a sex train is something else, apparently. OK, I'm going to read the first six lines, but just... Just look out for the D sounds in the first line or two, both at the beginning of words and at the end. It's great to read. I hope it's great to hear. An old, mad, blind, despised and dying king, princes the dregs of their dull race who flow through public scorn Mud from a muddy spring, rulers who neither see nor feel nor know, but leech-like to their fainting country cling, till they drop blind in blood without a blow. Wow. I, I couldn't read it without getting a bit angry. It's made. It's made to make you do that. That first line, an old, mad, blind, despised and dying king. It's fantastic, isn't it? And he's talking about King George, who sort of ticks all those boxes that he lists there. But princes, the dregs of their dull race who flow... And then it goes on. There's plenty of enjambment in this, again, slightly undermining the sonnet form. By enjambment, I mean you get your ten-syllable line, but it often continues on to the next line in order to complete the sentence. OK, an old mad blind, despised and dying king, princes the dregs of their dull race. And what I love about that is all those D sounds Old, mad, blind, despised and dying king. All those 
just bleed through to the next line. Prince is the dregs of their dull race. And I think he's making the point, Shelley, that these are the children of the king, these princes. And so he gives them the same alliterative sound as he's given their father, that duh. Okay, Prince is the dregs of their dull race. So they also dull and they really are he's seen them as scum the dregs of their dull race who flow through public scorn mud from a muddy spring so the muddy spring being their father and they've emanated from that they too are mud and they flow through public scorn everyone hates them Rulers who neither see, nor feel, nor know. I mean, one could apply that, of course, across the ages, but they neither see, so they're not aware of what real life is like, how the people really live. They don't feel, they have no emotional attachment to their people, and they don't know. They are ignorant, stupid people who have landed on their feet, been given this hereditary power and are unable to use it wisely. So, but leech-like to their fainting country cling till they drop blind in blood without a blow. Oh, this is good to say. But leech-like to their fainting country cling. You will know, probably, that leeches, those creatures that suck blood, were often applied to the sick, certainly applied to their father, who was um, ill. And, um, I mean, the father of the princes. And they suck the blood out. And the skill of the doctor is to know when to take them off, when the leeches are full, if you like, but here he suggests leech-like to their fainting country cling. They've been there a bit too long. They've taken too much blood. They are bloated. And the patient, in this case the country, is beginning to faint from losing all this resource. Till they drop blind in blood without a blow. So these princes eventually, like leeches, drop off the patient. They are so full and blind in blood, they're absolutely packed with it. And um, they drop off without a blow. They are passive, they are weak, they achieve nothing. And the use of that alliteration in that line, till they drop blind in blood without a blow, it's quite hard to say that blursam without sp- Spitting it out. And I think that's what Shelley wants us to do. I'm just going to read those first six lines again for my own personal pleasure. An old, mad, blind, despised and dying king. Prince is the dregs of their dull race who flow through public scorn, mud from a muddy spring. Rulers who neither see nor feel nor know but leech-like to their fainting country cling till they drop blind in blood without a blow. Okay, now the next sestet, he kind of broadens this to look at the country, not just its rulers. A people starved and stabbed on the untilled field, an army whom liberticide and prey makes as a two-edged sword to all who wield Gold and sanguine laws which tempt and slay, religion Christless, godless, a book sealed, a senate, time's worst statute unrepealed. So we're going into some of the specifics of England in 1819 here. A people starved and stabbed on the untilled field. Now, you can read that in a sort of universal truth way and say a people starved and stabbed on the untilled field suggests poverty, a people starved and stabbed, a violent rule, and an untilled field, some sort of economic mismanagement. Many feel it's a direct reference 
to what was known as the Peterloo Massacre, which had happened shortly before the poem was written. 80,000 electoral reform protesters had gathered in St Peter's Field in Manchester and the militia attacked them. Nine were killed and 400 were injured and it was a major, a major event and England's left-wingers of the time, though they weren't called that, were particularly outraged by it, of course. And it's called the Peterloo Massacre, although it was St Peter's Field where it happened. The loo bit of it is a back reference to Waterloo, which was this great British military victory under the Duke of Wellington over Napoleon, And I think it's an ironic term because that was all about this tremendous patriotic achievement. And this is about the corrupt and dark side of military power here used against its own people. So to contrast it with Waterloo is poignant indeed. A people starved and stabbed on the untilled field. So I think there may be a specific reference to that Peterloo massacre incident, or it may just be a general poverty, violent rule, economic mismanagement list of imagery. An army whom liberticide and prey makes as a two-edged sword to all who wield... Now, I'd never heard the word liberticide before I, uh, before I read this, but as patricide is the killing of one's father and matricide the killing of one's mother, liberticide is the killing of liberty. It's good, isn't it? An army whom liberticide and prey, just that horrible, like, carrion they are, preying on their people, P-R-E-Y, obviously, makes us a two-edged sword to all who wield. So, like many armies, and like that example of Waterloo and Peterloo, it's great when it's defending you, but not so great when it's turned on its own. It has two edges, this sword, and it's hard to wield it without it cutting both ways. Golden and sanguine laws which tempt and slay. So golden seem to be tied up with money, some sort of financial corruption. Sanguine, blood red. So also involved, as we've seen, with violence and the sanctioning of violence against its own people. Golden and sanguine laws which tempt and sly. They tempt like gold always does, tempt you towards corruption, towards doing the wrong thing, and slay because the people have been slain as a result of these laws, of this two-edged sword. The military power has gone wrong because it's under the rule of this old, mad, blind, despised and dying king and the princes who are the dregs of their dull race. The country is collapsing. This is a good example, um, and I've mentioned this before, I think, of presentism. Uh, If you read uh, the Bible, if you read um, the writings of the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans or stuff from the 1930s, everyone thinks their own time is the most corrupt time of all. A sort of anti-present Stance. Okay. Religion Christless, Godless, a book sealed. So Shelley here, although, as I said, as an Oxford student, he established his own atheism, he's still able to look at religion, see it as Christless, Godless, a book sealed. It's lost its way, even if you accept its truth. It's lost its way. It's lost that sort of radical nature of, of Jesus Christ and he's championing of, of the poor and his dismissal of, of the powerful. And a godless, a book sealed. The Bible seems to be sealed. It's not evolving. It's been allowed to die. And 
religion has not fulfilled its potential, even to an atheist like Shelley, it hasn't fulfilled the good that it could do in society. Okay, I'm turning the page in my um, Everyman Poems and Prose, Percy Bysshe Shelley, if you want to check out the actual... Uh, mm -hmm. A Senate Times Worst Statute on Repeal. Now, many have debated this when I've read around this poem. I think I owe you that much prep. And they, they talk about what could be Times Worst Statute on Repeal. And there's several theories, but I think... A Senate, which I think he's referring to Parliament, Times Worst Statute Unrepealed. I think that's what he's saying is Times Worst Statute Unrepealed. The actual establishing of Parliament, that that needs to be really looked at and it needs to be changed massively. It is Times Worst Statute. It's one of the worst things to be made law and to be made permanent and it remains unrepealed. It needs reform. So we then get to what feels like a closing couplet, though, like I say, we've had two sestets. And just to defy the, the sonnet rules even more, the rhyming scheme of the, this final, I'm going to call it a couplet, but it isn't really, the final two lines are taken from the previous six. So where we had pray and slay as a rhyme in the second sestet, we now find may and day in the closing two lines. So he's really, he shot the sonnet form to pieces whilst still making it feel like a sonnet. It's very cleverly done. So here comes the last two lines. Our graves from which... Hold on, you're thinking, what, what, what are graves? What's going on? Well, what's happened here is the first 12 lines of the sonnet have been a list, a long list. Um, just looking back at it now, the king, the princes, the corrupt army, the corrupt laws, the corrupt church, the corrupt parliament... He's just listed, listed, listed them. And now he says, our grave. So what this closing, I'm not going to call it a couplet. It isn't real. No, I will. This closing couplet in inverted commas gives us is the first big verb of the whole poem. The poem is one long, angry sentence with barely a pause for breath. And he finally gets in the penultimate line to the main verb of that sentence. So, list, 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 list. And now this is what I'm saying about this list of things. Are, all those things, are graves from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. So all those things are graves. They are all dead. They all represent the past. They all need something to enliven them. We are calling out now for a resurrection for England. And it's interesting that the, the rhyme, you know, normally you put an important word, I'm saying normally, it's often done to put an important word at the end of a line for emphasis. But here, our graves from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. May is an interesting word to end on because it's so... Well, you know, what could happen. It's a, it's a very on positive thing. It's very vague, very tenuous. Our graves from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. So these graves of all these corrupt public institutions may have a phantom that rises from them. So somehow connected to that past but rising up, resurrected, turned into a spirit form, a phantom, and it may rise up and illumine our tempestuous day. It may bring sunshine to all this gloom. 
it seems to be our only hope, but the power of the establishment, I suppose, and the fact it goes so often unchallenged means that this spectre may save us and it may not. But what is it, this spectre? For me, it can only be poetry. Poetry is the glorious phantom which may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. Now, that might seem a big claim when you're listening to this, but um, I'm going to read you a little bit from A Defence of Poetry, which is a long essay about poetry which Shelley wrote. Again, it wasn't published until after his death by his wife, Mary, And he, man, does he give poetry some great press. It ends famously. I know I always use the term famously guardedly when I speak of poetry because on one level, no one's interested in poetry except us guys. Yeah, it's just us. But if you're going to know a line from Shelley's prose, you're going to know from the end of a defence of poetry, the very last line, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. So they are the ones who change things. They are the ones who make the new rules. And I'll give you another couple of quotes just to show that my idea that the phantom that rises from the grave being poetry isn't ludicrous. I think he honestly thinks that poetry can change the world, Shelley. I don't doubt that he believed that. Listen to this. The most unfailing herald, companion and follower of the awakening of a great people to work a beneficial change in opinion or institution is poetry. The most unfailing herald, the voice, the the voice we can depend on, the companion and follower of the awakening of a great people to work a beneficial change in opinion or institution. So it's the thing that's most likely to change people's opinions in a beneficial way or to change actual institutions in a beneficial way is poetry. And then he says, a little later, it is impossible to read the compositions of the most celebrated writers of the present day without being startled with the electric life which burns within their words. I mean, so good, this. They measure the circumference and sound the depths of human nature with a comprehensive and all-penetrating spirit. So they really understand and express human nature, the poets. And they are themselves perhaps the most sincerely astonished at its manifestations. So the poets say these remarkable, world-changing things, and no one is more surprised than them. How can that be? I hear you ask. Well, this is what he says. And they are themselves perhaps the most sincerely astonished at its manifestations, for it is less their spirit than the spirit of the age. Now, many, many years later, um, literary critics, uh, 20th century literary critics, came up with the idea that Authorship isn't that important. That I think the classic example they use is, is that if Shakespeare hadn't written his plays, someone else would have. That art is the product of its age and that these critics felt that that's why you should look, when you look at art, don't look at individual poets, for example. Look at the society they came from and see that poem as a product of that society that's what they say and it's a it's a very uh, valid argument but the trouble is with seeing poems as written by society rather than individuals is you don't get those stories about hearts being wrapped up in poems and um, people rowing into the bristol channel putting their political pamphlets 
into little handmade boats. So, um, you know, balance is everything. Look, that's a perfectly ample length for a poetry podcast, and that's why inevitably I'm going to do a bit more. I always do this, and I often say, if you've had enough, Shelley, just switch off now, and you never know, you might you might come back. I'm just going to do another, an, another quick sonnet, and um, obviously when I say you can switch off and go if you like, the idea of you doing that breaks my heart, but that's life. And also, if just to lure you in, if you're about, if you're reaching for the button, I'm going to do what is, I'm going to use that word famous again in inverted commas, arguably Shelley's most famous poem, and it's called uh, Ozymandias. And um, Ozymandias is another sonnet, and it again doesn't follow the rules. And I could tell you that it's kind of 8-6, which makes it sound Italian, but then it has very unorthodox rhymes, like um, line 7 rhymes with line 10, and there would be Italian poets, I won't do the accent, saying, hold on, the initial uh, octet can't rhyme then, we can't have a line from that rhyming with the the sestet, you've you've spoilt the whole thing. And again, it, it's uh, it's Shelley undermining a very formal and uh, very courtly form, the sonnet, and uh, using it for his own ends. But it is a beauty. Ozymandias, you must know it. Oh, anyway, I'm going to read you um, the first eight lines. Okay. I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. You know it, don't you? Maybe you don't. I should say this is an example of Ubisunt. Ubisunt, U-B-I and then S-U-N-T, is uh, it's a Latin term and it basically means where are they now? And it's a whole genre of um, writing, specifically, I think, poetry. And it asks, you know, what happened to those people who used to be blah, blah, and now they've gone. An example that you might know would be the Stranglers, No More Heroes. Whatever happened to Leon Trotsky? He got an ice pick that made his ears burn. So that would, uh, the, the Stranglers, um, No More Heroes, is in the Ubisant tradition. Okay. I met a traveller from an antique land. That's the first line. So we have the speaker, I, and they met a traveller from an antique land, someone who's been to the land of the ancients. He doesn't specify. And I'd say one thing about this poem is it's much, much, much more general than the previous sonnet that we looked at. That was talking about very specific times. And this is talking about, if you like, a specific ruler, Ozymandias, who I believe is one of the names of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramesses II, but doesn't help. I don't think it helps in the enjoyment of the poem to know that. I met a traveller from an antique land. Why does he start like that? Well, I think if you've met a traveller from an antique land, you just know he's going to have a great story, isn't he? And he's coming from this ancient place. It's going to be shot through with timeless wisdom But also it's going to be exciting because this is a traveller 
someone who gets themselves out there. He basically meets Indiana Jones in the first line, the speaker. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs, I presume he said all the stuff before this, he didn't just open with it, who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone. So we're in inverted commas now after who said who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Again, there's lots of enjambment in this. So that's the end of a sentence, but it's in the middle of a line. But I'm, I'm going to follow mainly the, the sentence to give you the sense, and I'll try and throw in a bit of the rhyme as we go. I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone Stand in the desert. So, we imagine these enormous legs, but trunkless, so that the top part of the body, the abdomen, chest, that's gone. There's just two big legs standing there, legs of stone. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. So a, a broken face that's clearly come from this statue whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read. So this broken face that lies next to these two big legs has on it a sort of a character description of the person who the statue was of. I don't know if you can end a sentence on of, but I can do what I like, it's my podcast. So, near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, this broken face, whose frown and wrinkled lips, so frowning, a slight sneer, and sneer of cold command, a sneer of cold command. Oh, so this is a powerful, ruthless, scary, great man who once stood here. Whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read. So the sculptor who made this statue knew what he was doing. If he wanted to get across the character of Ozymandias, he did it beautifully. That is what the traveller thinks, at least. So, um, uh, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. So you can still see those characteristics, the frown, the wrinkled lip, the sneer of cold command, uh, that show that the sculptor was very talented. And they still survive. You can still get that sense stamped on these lifeless things. And I think that's the first idea that art lasts longer than actual people, which is an interesting sentiment to place in a poem because you're suggesting that your own art outlives mere people as well, which in this case it absolutely has done. Shelley, the voice behind the speaker, is correct. So which yet survived, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. So what we can read here... And it said that the sculpture well those passions read. He also well those passions wrote because he read them in his understanding of Ozymandias and then he depicted them in his, in his sculpture. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. That's what we can see here. So the hand that mocked them, the sculptor who seemed to mock the wrinkled lip and the frown and the sneer of cold command by portraying it in the statue. He could have given a, a, a straight, you know, when uh, artists were asked to make people look lovely in, uh, in their depictions. He hasn't done that. 
He's shown the ruthless power of the man. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. I think what he's saying there is what we get is the hand that mocked them. We get the skill of the sculptor and the heart that fed. And we get the heart that fed that frown, that fed that wrinkled lip, that fed that sneer of cold command. You know, in other words, we get Ozymandias' heart. So the skill of the sculptor and the truth of the subject both lie here in these shattered remains of this mighty, mighty statue. That is what I think is happening in the first eight lines. The last six. And on the pedestal these words appear. So then we get a quote within a quote. We are... We have the speaker quoting the traveller and now the traveller quoting the pedestal on which these two legs continue to stand. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And on the pedestal, these words appear. So the traveller's going to tell the speaker what it says underneath the legs. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. So Ozymandias is saying to the mighty, not just to the low, the minions who would have worshipped at his feet, but to any who dared to call themselves a king or a mighty power, look on my works and despair. And I think his works, we imagine, surround this statue, some mighty civilization, some mighty city. But the next line says, nothing beside remains. All that has gone now. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So we don't get our lovely uh, couplet ending. Even that last word, away, is an interesting way to end. It's a sort of gentle, gentle rhyme. It's, it leaves us, well, this is how I think, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It inclines us to read it as if, the words now are fading also, stretch far away. We can feel the sand, the vast wasteland around it. And I'm waiting throughout this poem for the speaker to come back. I'm always saying, I met a traveller from an antique land who said, so I'm expecting I'll take the traveller's words and then offer my own view on what was said either some qualification or some utter agreement and that would be the place for the killer couplet at the end but no Shelley doesn't do that that eye never comes back he hands the baton to the traveller the traveller tells the story and in the end the sonnet this great structured poem that is all about neatness just sort of slips away like sand at the end. So I suppose we, the reader, must provide the final summing up. We have to interpret this traveller's tale in a very Shelleyan way, you could say. The people are given the final say. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away and you can hear those alliterative moments boundless and bare 
the lone and level sands. And also that phrase, colossal wreck, is a great contradictory juxtaposition. Something that's colossal, massive, mighty, but is a wreck, is broken and lost. And it seems to me that the poem is is largely about the work of the sculpture. It's about his power. Even though his work is broken, his power, his message lives on. As it says, which yet survive. You can still read the sculptor's interpretation of Ozymandias. You can still read that frown that he put on his face, that wrinkled lip, that sneer of cold command. What we're actually getting here is quite a subjective view of Ozymandias, which has been given and handed down generation to generation by this sculptor. He is the one with the power. He is the one whose works have remained. Whereas the actual mighty, powerful leader He's made to look ridiculous by proclaiming his power in the midst of a sandy wasteland. It's almost as if the uh, the artist came up with that uh, that bit of writing on the pedestal just to make Ozymandias look even more stupid. But it's interesting that the subjective view is the surviving one, and I think that is always true of history. I'm sure England in 1819, that previous poem, has had a similar effect on many readers over the years. Our view of the king and his sons, the government, the army, the church of that period, are all coloured by Shelley's uh, response to them. And Ozymandias, the poem, still stands strong and I think you could say has the immortality that the king of kings, Ozymandias himself, could only dream of. It's a, it's a brilliant, moving poem. It was published absolutely legitimately, no problems. And uh, a couple of years before England in 1819. And it's interesting because I think what it says about power and what it says about status is in a way more damning and more destructive than what he said in England in 1819. But because it's said in a universal way, because it's not talking about the current king and the current princes and the current government, there was no issue with it being given to the public. And maybe... uh, Maybe the message in that is if you stick to the universal, you not only create something more powerful, but also you create something which lasts forever in a way that Ozymandias, with all his political power, did not. It, I can't discuss Ozymandias in 2023, which is when I'm recording this podcast, without... I mean, to me, there is a, a glaring modern analogy here, and that is the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol, a man who'd made a lot of his money from the slave trade and did put a lot back into Bristol and became a great benefactor. But still, that dark shadow of sin was across him. And you'll know that in 2020, the statue which had been there since 1895, the statue was torn down by protesters, I think as part of the Black Lives Matter. Um, and here come the police now to to sort it out, by the sounds of it. Um, and it was ripped down, it was graffitied, it was uh, thrown into Bristol Harbour, not too far away from where Shelley had been in his rowing boat distributing his political pamphlets. It was then displayed in a museum in its broken, graffitied form. And that seems to me like a sort of version of this poem. This man was a great 
powerful man, a great exploiter of human beings. He also gained power by being a benefactor of Bristol. But now we have seen through it all. We have torn him down and here he lies graffitied and humiliated. And however you feel about that, and I know you'll have, some of you will have differing views of whether this was a good or a bad thing. I just would love to know whether Shelley would feel that the decay of the ages is a better way to see off the powerful than the people rising up. In this case, the statue didn't fall apart like that of Ozymandias. It was ripped down. I think Shelley would have liked that version better. I think if Shelley had found out that the ancient Egyptians, the ordinary Egyptians, had ripped that statue down, he would have loved it. The one thing that spoils my Colston statue, Ozymandias, analogy is the sculptor of uh, Colston was a guy called John Cassidy and he very much does not depict the wrinkled lip and the sneer of Cole Command. If you actually look at the Colston statue and it's very annoying this, he looks quite thoughtful, pensive even. There might even be a shimmer of regret about him so that was bad work by the sculptor. We want a real bad guy we can tear down, not someone who's having second thoughts. So, yeah, it was published in, uh, in, in 1818, Ozymandias. And I think its power still is, uh, is very, very strong. Obviously, there's loads of um, Shelley stuff to read. He's a bit of a ledge. And... Um, I urge you to think what for you is the most powerful poem, the one tied to the specifics of Shelley's age or the one set in an antique land that seems to still feel relevant. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week. 